0: Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Elland. When we talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome, we normally associate it with veterans of war. Rarely do we ever discuss PTSD among law enforcement officers and what they experience day after day, year after year during their career. Today we're going to do that with a man who was a police officer for over 30 years. He was on 11 medications but has eliminated them through the use of cannabis, and is on the road to recovery. And joining us from Colorado to tell his story is Brent Pace. Brent, it's very good of you to do this. We appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: Now, tell us the story of how you got into law enforcement.
1: Well, I I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, but uh, when I graduated high school, I went down to Green River, Utah, which is about 50 miles uh, north of Moab, Utah, I went down there to work in uranium mines. And while I was working in the uranium mines, uh, Green River City had a part-time city marshal slot come up. And I tried it, and I really liked it. Of course, then the uranium mine went out of business, and I had to go up to Park City, Utah, to work in a gold mine. And while the problem with working in mines, you always work yourself out of a job as soon as the <laughs> ore runs out.
0: That's right.
1: So Emory County Sheriff's Office down there in Green River had an opening. I applied and got on, and I just almost felt like it was a calling to be a law enforcement officer. I don't know how to describe that. It just felt like I was supposed to do that, and so that's what I did for the next 30-plus years.
0: Well, when you do something you like, uh, there's a gut feeling uh, within you that really is inexplicable. You, it's hard to explain to other people, isn't
1: it? It is. It's hard to explain. And so you feel like you're supposed to do this, so you jump in full force. Well, law enforcement, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a negative experience, even at best, you know, even on your good days, it's just full of turmoil. And so, you know, it starts taking its toll on just the average cop. So a lot of cops are just heavy drinkers. And after work, they go to the bar, they go home, and they just drink, 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 you know, which isn't good for you.
0: Brent, do you remember well, your first day on the job?
1: I do. My first day – well, my first day on the job is a – as a full-time deputy sheriff was Emory County. And of course, I'd been working in uranium mines with this guy. Well, the first day on the job, he killed his wife and himself. And this is a guy I knew, the guy I'd worked with in the mine. So it, it was pretty traumatizing. You know, it, of course, that's a traumatizing event, no matter who it happens to. But when you know the people, it just really adds to that, the injury that you feel.
0: What did that do to you, do you you think, over the years? Or is being a police officer just an accumulation of these negative events?
1: Well, what eventually happens is, is, you know, as a police officer, you're supposed to be this big, tough person and handle anything. And so you go to these horrible events, and you start uh, stuffing that pain down deep inside, you know, because you don't want to show it. You just don't sit around with a bunch of cops and say, man, that was horrible, you know. (laughs) Because cops are pretending like they're so tough, you know. And so you stuff all this stuff down inside, then they get home and they have to try to let it out. So they usually start drinking, a lot of them.
0: It's a macho (laughs) thing,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it's a macho thing. You really don't want to show any kind of emotion because they think that's weakness. When in reality life is just the opposite you get a lot more out of people if you can be on an emotional level with them than just stating facts and you know questioning them and that if if you can make a connection with them emotionally you can get a lot more done
2: so brent when you attended you know events like this events uh crimes like this what was your method of debriefing? Did you get into drinking alcohol when you got home? Or I,
1: um, I drank a little bit, but I've always had a bad liver. I've mm. had a fatty liver. Mm. And so alcohol really hurts me. And so I could drink, but the next day I just really pay the price. And so alcohol wasn't a good option for me because I just felt so bad after doing that. And so um, I tried to exercise a lot stuff like that but i'm i'm uh, such an introvert i don't really go out of my way to to find people and explain to them how i'm feeling so i'll just internalize it all and go sit in the corner you know so you (laughs) pretty much good
2: sounds to me like you pretty much kept it to yourself then
1: oh yeah i definitely kept it to myself yeah, because I, and I'm still that way a lot. I am uh, I was real shy. I, I wasn't timid, but I was shy as a kid. And so it was kind of a weird thing. I've always been kind of a daredevil, though, too. So I had this shyness, but I was always willing to take big risks and do things, you know. And I got hurt a lot because of that, riding motorcycles, dirt bikes and that.
0: Brent, when I was doing commercial radio and uh, one of the things that I did was interview a police officer every month on domestic violence in our community. And yeah. some of the stories that she told me about the events and situations that they have to deal with were absolutely horrific, especially when you it, it involves children. Uh, men beating up their wives or their spouses or their partners. And uh, I went for coffee with her one day, and I said, how do you deal with it? And she said, I try not to take it home with me. But the key word in that was, I try not to.
1: Yeah, that's the problem. You try not to, but you really can't. And so what happens is you get home, and if you have kids and they're acting out, then you start snapping at them because you're trying to suppress these horrible emotions you're having, especially domestics are horrible. You go there and someone's beat somebody unconscious. You know, it's terrible. So you go home and you try to keep it in, but your kids, you know, just being normal kids, and so you start yelling at them and you're impatient and you get on edge and it's just not good. And you've got these horrible pictures in your mind which makes you overprotective. And sometimes being overprotective, it doesn't make you the best parent. You actually do things to your kids that are more harmful because you're overprotective. You're overcautious. You're always yelling at them to not do that or this. So that part of police work really takes its toll. You know, you always hear people say, you want to see the worst kids in town, look it for the cops' kids. <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth to that because yeah. those kids get put under so much pressure when they get home. Because in a cops' world, it's, all, it's always cops and robbers. Bad, good. Well, normal families aren't like that. You know, a normal guy comes home from work, he might be stressed, but he's not thinking cops and robbers even when he's home. And so you're thinking that way, so you start taking it out on your kids, and it's just not good.
0: Brent, you did some undercover work, didn't you?
1: Three, three times I've done unco- undercover work. The first time was in a, just a mid-sized city up in Salt Lake Valley, and I ran it turned out to be a consignment shop. <laughs> we wanted it to be a pawn shop, but the city had rules against pawn shops. <laughs> and so I just bought a lot of stolen property. But with stolen property, there's always a lot of drugs that come in with that, you know. And so it was kind of a joint thing, working drugs and stolen property. And, you know, you talk about seeing some horrible incidents. I had this lady. She was a street hooker, and she had two kids. You know, like one was, girl was about 10, and her little boy was about 7. Well, she'd come into my shop. And ask what was going on, and she'd say, "Ask me if I had any money today." I'd say, "Yeah, I always got money." She'd leave and come back, she'd take her kids, and come back, and they'd have four or five hundred dollars worth of stolen stuff that they'd gone to like a Sears or a Walmart, you know, and then they'd sell it to me. Well, one day they'd done this burglary of a house, and they were giving me the stuff to buy. And the mom said to this little seven-year-old boy, where's the wedding rings I told you to grab? And that little boy, sorry, this is hard for me. That little boy said to his mom, I didn't want to take their wedding rings. And I watched her beat him to the ground in my shop and tell him, don't you ever not do what I tell you. That kid didn't have a chance. Of course, he ended up in prison, you know, 10 years later. But you see those horrific instances. Well, that mom, she's just trying to make it, you know, survive. I'm not making a judgment on her as a person because she's trying to survive, and she's picked some bad methods to do that. Mm-hmm. But those poor kids, they don't have a chance. You know, they're being taught that that's how you do it, that you take people's stuff. And a lot of people, I don't think, see that. You know, they see, they hear about people stealing stuff and that, but they don't realize this is, can be a generational deal where kids are actually taught to do that kind of stuff by their parents.
0: I once interviewed uh, a gentleman who worked for the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States, and he was an undercover agent for... Uh, the agency and what he was doing was laundering money for the medine drug cartel uh-huh. and he had to he had to assume a different identity of course and uh, the folks got suspicious of him and uh-huh. they called him in one day and he was of course extremely nervous and he thought this might be my last day on earth he thought they were going to kill him because they accused him of being a cop. Mm-hmm. And he bluffed his way through it. He said it was the most traumatic day of his life because he had a wife and kids, and he, oh, thought, yeah. he thought he was going to be killed. But ev- eventually, they actually made a movie out of it, and the fellow uh, that was in Breaking Bad, uh, the star of Breaking Bad...
1: yeah. He, I saw that movie. Oh, did you?
0: Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And um, and so those are the issues that police officers have to face that the public really isn't aware of, aren't they?
1: Oh, they have no idea. And I've been in those situations. Similar, of course, when you're dealing with the Medellin cartel, you're a dead man if they find out. You hmm. won't get out of the room, you know. But one time I was undercover in Durango. And I started out with these two other partners, and we'd find out there was a lot of corruption. and And the attorney general told us, "Don't trust the police." Well, most of the police, they were great, but we didn't know which ones were bad. Well, the guy that was supposed is called your mother, who watches over you. And he was supposed to be running the body wire for me, and I was making a cocaine buy. And I go to this guy's house. Well, I couldn't find my, I couldn't find this the mother. He didn't show up. But I already had this by a range, so I went anyway. Well, when I walked in, the guy pulled out a .357 Magnum and put it right to my temple. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, this is it. Is he going to kill me? What's going on? And I have a .45. Of course, when you're under, you never use a holster. And I have it stuffed in the back of my pants. And I'm thinking, can I get my gun out and shoot him before he shoots me? And just sweating bullets. And he bursts out laughing and says, how do you like my new three fifty seven Magna? That was a horrible, you know, it turned out okay. But it was a horrible experience because, for one, the guy that's supposed to be monitoring me didn't show up. I'd already been told by the Attorney General, there's dirty cops, watch yourself. And then this guy puts his gun to my head. Well, that could have turned into a real bad situation. When it actually wasn't, if, if you understand what I'm saying. To, me, oh, to yeah. this guy on the street, that's just how he lived. Mm-hmm. You know, pointing guns at people and that. But when you're undercover, that's a pretty tense situation.
2: Well, I, I would think something like that wouldn't leave you easily. You know, yes, he was joking in his mind, but oh my God, I can't even imagine. Oh,
1: yeah, in his mind, he was joking. I'm literally thinking, I've got to kill this guy or he's going to kill me. But, you know, I I can't, I don't want to jump up and give myself away. So I'm thinking, how can I do this? And then he burst out laughing, which was quite a relief. But it's so much more ugly and complicated. When I was running that uh, uh, consignment shop, Well, this hooker, of course, you know, the key to police work is informants. Good police work, you solve crime because people tell you what's going on. Well, she was an informant for another cop in a bigger agency. She calls him up, asks him, hey, something going on out in this city? He tells her, yeah. The next day, she brings this guy in. They go in my bathroom, and I had a camera hidden in the wall. I hear all this commotion. I open the door and I see him taking my wall apart, finding my camera. So you get in some pretty tense situations.
0: Wow. Well, I mean, you're in a situation where you can't trust some of the people you deal with and you can't trust some of the people you work with.
1: Well, let let me tell you how bad it is. So here I am in Durango, Colorado, working undercover. And when I was brought down there, I was briefed by FBI that were part of this task force that these ex-cops were selling guns in Central America at the same time the cocaine was being shipped back to the USA. And I'm thinking, there's no way that could happen. Here I am putting my life on the street to buy dope, and you're telling me our CIA is shipping it into this country? I think there ain't no way. Well, it turns out it's true, Ollie North. So yeah. the ran Contra deal. So every drug cop should be pissed at our government. Our government gets up there and says, oh, we got to do this to protect people. we got to make all these drugs illegal. But then they pull a stunt like that. That messes with your head when you're a cop.
0: <laughs> Brent, what do police forces do to help cops?
1: really on PTSD it's just breaking and so there's they're just getting to where like my nephew told me they're now he's a cop up in the valley they're starting to have where they pull everyone in and are training them about PTSD the problem is there's such a stigma to it that nobody wants to tell it's kind of like being in the military there's a lot of guys with depression but they're afraid to say does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, I think so. I think I think it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And
1: so, so you get a guy in the military; he can't take antidepressants, so kick him out. Well, the cops a lot of the same way. You know, they're afraid to say that they have this depression, and a lot of times you don't know what it is because you think that that's how life is when you go on enough death and fights and people being beaten up. You start getting so twisted you start thinking that's just the way the world is and you just have to deal with it so then when you start going home and you start having flashbacks at night or during the day you think well that's just part of being a cop because you're seeing all this ugly shit you can't go on a murder of a small child and ever be normal about that again
0: I know, I mean, just you telling the story about the fellow holding a 357 Magnum up to your temple, uh, that yeah. kind of sent chills through my spine and I was just listening to your story and you had to experience it. Yeah. Now, were you on any medications at all during your...
1: Oh. <laughs> <I was amazed. laughs> so what happens was i guess the answer I,
0: yeah, is yes right
1: <laughs> yeah i was doing under so i did the consignment shop undercover when i get done with that well you get a little bit of a re- reputation that you're good at something so then colorado wants me to come over there and work dope so i go over there and work under there and i get done with that then I get back, and that, then they want me to be in the gang unit and work undercover in the Salt Lake Valley. So I do that. And all this time, I'm just stuffing all this stuff down inside and not getting any relief. And I start having these horrible headaches. So I go to the doctor. Pretty soon, you know, I'm taking amitriptyline for depression, Adderall for ADD, all kinds of antidepressant medicine, heart, blood medicine. And so it just keeps building up.
2: Brent, can I just ask you, were were you told when you went to the doctor at that point, were you told that you had PTSD?
1: Oh, no, no, this is what happened. So I had these headaches. And so I was going to doctors, and they were trying to figure it out. Of course, I also had these high liver levels and that, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I found this osteopath, and he was into pain meds. And he started giving me Lortab, or hydrocodone, for my headache. And I was working the whole time. Well, one day I go in, and there just happened to be this state guy that represented uh, over hydrocodone. And we know it's a problem. So many people are dying. Well, I'm in my gang uniform at that time. He immediately goes and calls my chief. And they don't even ask me. They automatically say, you got to go to a rehab. You're a drug addict. So they sent me to this this, uh, rehabilitation. I'm thinking, well, I'll give it a shot. But after about two weeks, I'm saying, I'm not a drug addict. This isn't me. I'm not fitting in here. And I finally lost my temper and just got up and walked out and told the chief, this is BS. I'm not a drug addict. Yes, I've used drugs because I have headaches, but I'm not a drug addict. So they sent me to a psychiatrist, and he did all these tests, and he's the one that said you got PTSD, and then ADD, and but the problem was they put you on antidepressants, the worst one being Effexor. I don't know if you've heard of it.
2: Yeah, I was actually on that way back in the day for a little bit, and but, uh, not nice. I was only on it a couple of months and said no.
1: Yeah, at first. It was like turning on a light bulb because I would I had been so uh, depressed and so taking those kind of opened my mind back up a little. But then you have to start taking more and more, and the side effects start getting horrendous. I mean, you become numb; you literally can't feel anything. And I, when I say that, I mean physically, emotionally, even. Even sex doesn't feel good, and who wants to live like that? So I'm taking all these prescription drugs, and I'm, and I'm not uh, mad at the doctors. They did their best. They kept me going for all those years, but I wasn't getting better. And so then when I finally decided to retire, I had made up in my mind, I'm going to quit taking out all the medicine. Because I won't have insurance when I retire, and I can't afford to buy the COBRA plan. So I couldn't afford So about two or three months before I retired, I quit taking my medicine. So you wouldn't tell you that?
0: Did you go <laughs> cold turkey?
1: Cold, Pretty much cold turkey, except for the Effexor. An are when you quit taking you get these electrical shocks and that up your neck, and you can't sleep. And so I had to wean it off for a couple of weeks, <laughs> weeks to a month. But then I'm just miserable. And my son lives in Colorado, so we, he needs our help because he's having seizures. But he's really controlled his seizures through uh, smoking marijuana. He was having three or four seizures, you know, every couple of months. Well, he started doing more regular intake of marijuana, and he cut them way back to maybe once or twice a year. I'm over there and he's telling me, you should try this, Dad, it'll help you. And I'm thinking, no way, I can't be doing that. You know, I spent 30 years fighting it. Although I'd started to do research and it wasn't nearly as committed that, that it being bad. Why, as the last part of being a cop. But then my son started showing me all these articles from doctors and other countries who actually had the courage to do the research our country doesn't have the courage all we want to do is oppress people over it you know when we could do the studies and he convinced me to try it and it's turned my life around
0: now do you smoke it
1: i use oil vaporize and edibles
0: what was it like the
2: first time you did it and what did you do the first time
1: well, I, I had done uh, marijuana as a teenager a little bit, and then you realize when there's two kinds of undercover: when you're really deep undercover, you know you hear a cop say, "Oh you can't do drugs, that's against the law." Well, if you want to stay alive when you're really deep undercover, there's times you have to just to stay alive. Yes. And so the problem though, when you smoke marijuana when you're undercover, you get paranoid. You think you got this big sign on your head that says "police"?
2: I'm a cop.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm a cop. So it wasn't pleasant being undercover and using it because of that paranoia. Now you know there's
2: sorry to interrupt here, Brent, but there's a lot of people who uh, I'm sure you realize are smoking pot, and they start getting really paranoid when they see a cop. (laughs) That's their big fear.
1: Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know what's funny? It doesn't matter who you are, even other cops. If you're driving down the road and you look in your rearview mirror and there's a cop, even as a cop, it startles you. <laughs> so, I can I can imagine how it'd be on a citizen, you know.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Brent, um, how soon after taking marijuana did you notice that you were starting to feel a bit better?
1: Right off for this one thing, you realize I started throwing up every morning when I'd wake up. I'd wake up, and then within an hour, I'd throw up. So I finally had enough of it, and I said, I want you to try this oil. I smoked that oil or vaporized that oil, and my nausea was instantly gone. I mean instantly. So I said, well, this can't be all bad. I didn't (laughs) throw up this morning. (laughs) So every morning, I'd get nauseous. All I had to do was take a little dab of oil, and it would take my nauseous away. Most of the time, I'd say 99% of the time, there were a few times I'd smoke and still throw up, but most of the time it took it away. So over months, I started feeling better. I I literally, after I retired, pretty much laid in bed. I went from uh, 230 pounds down to 175 I was ready to die. I didn't I didn't want to talk to people because you realize when you're a cop, you realize everyone has a sad story no matter who they are. Bad things happen to people and you don't want to know it after a while because you're overloaded. And so it's just easier not to talk to people when you're in that twisted mindset. So I just stayed in bed, but as I... Like, Started. Then my son said, I want you to start eating uh, this uh, marijuana. So he ma- he makes me pills. He takes capsules and he gets oil and he mixes it with cocoa butter. And he's got it just, a, and it's, I call it micro dosing. And so mm-hmm. I take these pills every four hours with a small amount. And it took all my chronic fatigue, pain away, all my arthritis, pain away. And then I started noticing my mind started to become clear again. And I thought, well, how could that be? Because everyone says, oh, marijuana makes your mind cloudy. But I can tell you, when you microdose, it is the same as when I started taking Adderall, how my mind has woken up back and started working again from taking microdoses of marijuana.
0: Would you say, Brent, that uh, cannabis saved your life?
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because I didn't care. I'd seen so much evil. You know, I'd, the last part of my career, I was a medical, field medical examiner where all you do is deal with death, suicide, murder, and just mm-hmm. everyday death. Do you I know, just got,
0: What's interesting, I was just going to say, what's interesting about this, cannabis did save your life because, as you say, you went from 230 pounds to about 175. You didn't care whether you lived or died. But one of the fascinating things is your son saved your life.
1: Oh, my, oh definitely. My son, who my whole life, other cops would say is just a loser doper, you know. Because he likes marijuana. But he saved my life. He studied it. And it's like I challenge cops to to go out and study the material now. It is there. You no longer have to be deceived by your own government on what marijuana does to you.
0: Yeah, after all, and, it's just a plant, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's a plant. Well, it's a, it's almost a miraculous plant. Yeah. They're finding out all the stuff it does for you. But I also understand cop minds, because you realize all they see is the negative side of it. And I don't know, have you read Carl Hart's, any of his books? No. He is so good at explaining critical thinking, and that just because a kid is using a drug and he commits a crime doesn't mean that that drug caused him to commit that crime. And he goes on to show that there's just as many people not using that drug or more committing the same crime. But in cops' mind, as soon as they get there, if there's drugs involved, they automatically blame it on the drugs. It was very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's great. I
1: read his work.
0: So you find yourself, you're getting better every day. Do you, when, uh, when do you feel that you'll be in tip-top shape, that you'll be running marathons?
1: I don't know if I'll ever be in tip-top shape, <laughs> but, but I am now exercising every day, and I'm starting to gain back, I'm back up to 195 now, starting to put some muscle back on, and so it's just really helped, and it's just amazing to me that we got it so wrong as a government, you know? So, Brent, what's your, what's your
2: routine like with your cannabis use? So you get up in the morning and you, you take one of your capsules? Is that how the day starts? So, or? Yeah,
1: when I wake up in the morning, I'll take a capsule. And because it takes about 40 minutes, usually I start getting nauseous while I'm sitting there. And so that's when I'll have to do a dab of oil. And right now I just use a, uh, a nectar collector that my son makes he's a glass blower I've tried several vaporizers but I just haven't had good luck with them I don't know if you have or not and so right now I just use the nectar collector and he's up with a little torch okay but and so I'll I'll take my two morning capsules if I don't get nauseous then I don't have to use the oil I only use that if I get any nauseous and then I'll go to about noon and take two more capsules. Then to about five and take two more, and then take two at bed.
2: Now th- these capsules. Can I just ask you? Is this? Um, do you know if it's sativa or indica strains?
1: Mine is sativa. I don't do yeah. as good on indica. Yeah. But, no, I'm, I'm the other. I do better on indica, not as good on sativa. But my son's the genius at that, and I'm going to have to teach myself. I've just let him do it because he's so good at it on building them. But also, you know, if you go (laughs) in it, they're pretty expensive if you have to try to buy them. Yes. Uh, It's been a lot better making your own.
0: Well, Brent, it was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, hear your story. I think it's fascinating that you've, uh, you've turned the corner, thanks to your son. Uh, cannabis has yeah. really, really, really helped you, and that is excellent news. Anything you want to say in conclusion?
1: Well, I'm, I'm really nervous right now about the U.S. of A. because of our new election and our Jeff Sessions. He's so anti-marijuana. And so I think we really need to get the word out there. I understand why he is, because I've been on that side of law enforcement. All I'm saying is we need to get his eyes opened up. We need to get the law enforcement community eyes opened up, that there's a whole other side that really helps people.
0: And, Brent, we also want to give a a pitch to your GoFundMe campaign. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, how how do people access that?
1: Well, all they have to do is type in my name, Brent Pace PTSD, and it'll pull it up. Okay, perfect.
2: Can you explain a little about what it's about for people who might be listening?
1: Well, well, what we're trying to do is get enough money that I can pay, like uh, Gary Arona, who's a professional, to do a a full program on post-traumatic stress, because what people don't realize... We're going to have cops for the rest of forever, and those cops are going to get post-traumatic stress. And if we can deal with it sooner, there'll be better cops. It'll be a lot more efficient for the system. So that's what we got to do. Okay. I just guarantee cops are going to get post-traumatic stress. It's the nature of the beast. So we've got to find a way to help them with that.
2: Yeah, you know, I can't imagine what this does to families.
1: Yeah, it's tough. My kids have been through hell. But we're hanging in there. And it's not just cops. You know, a lot of the people you deal with as victims get post-traumatic stress. And I just think it needs to be more aware. And if uh, cannabis can help people, we need to get that out there so people can get some relief and have a better quality of life.
0: Thanks, Brent. Okay. We very much appreciate your time.
1: Okay.
2: Thank you, Brent, so much for uh, coming forward and sharing your story.
1: Okay, bye.
0: And just before we go, if you'd like to share your story about the medical use of cannabis and how it's helped you, then send us an email at info at Wherever you are in the world, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
2: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.